Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the thing that everyone is assuming we're going to talk about. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Real briefly, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcast. The podcast and type, you know how much it means to us if you subscribe, rate, and review. All of that helps us out a bunch. And uh, normally we would begin the show talking about a, a myriad, a smattering of other headlines. I found a few. Some are interesting. Some are uh, a little silly. Some are kind of downright discouraging, but there's... There's so much happening that everyone's eyes and ears seems to be on right now Right. that I thought, yeah, there's just no way for us to at the very least begin the show and not talk about it. Do you want to do you want to kind of give a, a quick summary, Brian, catch everyone up? What's sort of happening in real time right now? Yeah, everything has been building up to today, right? Like uh, people were descending upon Washington, D.C. for the January 6th, kind of just the reading of the Electoral College votes and. Uh, it's turned into mass chaos, man, as Trump supporters, uh, you know, have basically stormed the Capitol. And it's just I, I can't fathom what's going on in front of me as I watch this. I told you I'm sitting in my house. You and I are doing this shows, as we've been saying, from our houses. I turned the TV off like I'm like, I can't watch mm. this anymore. Uh, and there's reports of possible, you know, a possible gunfire of an improvised, uh, you know, explosive device. They're breaking windows of the Capitol. And you and I have been tried to have been really down the middle, I think, over the last however many months of like, hey, you know what? You understand the frustration. You understand this. But here's here's my general feel right now. I'm just sad. Like, I'm just mm. sad by what I'm watching going. What it. What in the world has happened? And then I think I'm angry about what's going on. But then I think what's really striking to me is I'm not surprised. And, mm. you know, I, mean, I might be surprised by the scope of what's going on. Like if you had told me last night, hey, yeah, the protesters are going to storm the Capitol uh, and like start do. I would have been like, oh, man, that seems a bit far. But as I watch it, I'm like, OK. I mean, even President Trump today in his speech basically encouraged people to go to the Capitol. What do you think was going to happen? You know what I mean? Right, and so right. uh, I don't want to paint all all Trump supporters with a broad brush. I get 99 percent of you wouldn't do this. But but the fact that that this is going on right now, let's be honest, by the people who have been crying law and order and blue lives matter for the last year. Uh, is is despicable. And it just makes me so sad, man. I read on Facebook, a buddy of mine's like, I've cried watching TV three times, he said in my life. Mm. He said, when I watch the Twin Towers fall, when I watch the reports about Sandy Hook and right now. And, wow. and I kind of get it. I kind of feel the same way. Like there's something about what makes America awesome that is crumbling before our eyes. And it's just infuriating and sad. And yeah, you're like, well, it can't get much worse than this. And then it does. And then it can't get much worse than this. And then it does. And it is scary. Like, what's the out here? What, what's the out? Is this just going to kind of go away? Because clearly people were just upset that were there, that that uh, the Senate and Vice President Pence and others were going to do their constitutional duty uh, and just uh, open up the election, you know, just kind of certify the election. Uh, and it's turned into mass chaos. And so you and I, like I said, have tried to be very like, hey, we want to understand both sides. We want to get it. But but for this small number of people, it's a large number, but a small number of the electorate of people who voted for President Trump, this is absurd. 
Uh, and if you're out there and you can't denounce what you're seeing from the small number of people, I think you really need to look in the mirror and ask yourself some questions. All right, Brian. So we're not political pundits and anyone that's nope. listened to the show knows they know that this is probably already really obvious. Um, we're pastors. We are followers of the way, right? We are Jesus people, whatever, whatever language you want to put to it. Um, social media is blowing up right now. Everyone's tweeting a hot take and they're trying to right. post something clever or quote worthy or, you know what I mean? And that, that that's not new. Um, but I guess what I, what I want to ask you is what's a Christ follower to do right now? You know, Mm. they're, they're not a politician. They don't live in DC. There's someone, maybe, maybe they even feel politically ambivalent at this point, or maybe full on despair is closer to what they're feeling. Like what, what is a Christ follower to actually do right now? Yeah, that's a great question, man, because I know myself and everyone's going to be in different spots. I I was kind of like, I'm not posting anything today. Like, I'm not getting on social media. Like, I I, I don't have much to say. But, um, you know, I think and again, like when I watch what's going on in D.C. right now and you see it like kind of they're, they're also like there's there some there's some Christian rhetoric being in it. And that just burdens me and makes me sad. So I don't know how to answer your question, except to say, this should make you really sad. Like this should drive us to prayer, Uh, but it should also drive us to ask, how did we get here? Was I complicit Mm -hmm. in any way to how we got here? We have to ask those questions. And this doesn't mean, again, if you're out there and you're a Trump voter, like that doesn't make you a bad person. It's the people doing what's going on in in Washington, DC right now, uh, who I have the problem with. And I I don't know, man. I think the answer is lament. I think the answer is self-reflection. I think it's to talk to your family about what's going on. Like I got home today and my wife and kids were watching what was going on. And my first inclination was like, oh gosh, should my kids be watching this? And then I was like, yeah, they should be watching this. Yeah, right. And talk them through this. Those are some things that come to mind. What comes to mind for you? Because I think that's a really good question because there's probably lots of people. You probably hear it in my voice. Because I don't know necessarily what to do with all of this right now. So how would you answer that question? I think any time that we're faced with something like this and our honest assessment is that we don't know what to do, mm-hmm. we should pause. We should lament. Um, as cliche as it can sound, I think we need to be a people of prayer right now more than we do, uh, more than we need to be a people of tweets. Mm-hmm. Um we need to pray for for healing. We need to pray for protection in that regard. And I, I I would say that man, anytime, anytime that I find myself eager to condemn the actions of somebody else, I also want right. to be asking, like, God, would you would you show the parts of my heart that are just as toxic? You know, yep. I think that that is yep. that's important. It's it's to me. I have so many thoughts specifically with today being Epiphany. You know, mm-hmm. and gosh, yeah, know, like the ways of Herod versus the ways of Jesus. The huh. the ways of Herod you know, were of fear and threatening and violence that the ways of the religious leaders were complacency, you know, but the, yeah. the magi, these like really unexpected characters in the story, these, these non-Jewish astrologers, you know, they're the ones that they're attentive. They're paying attention. I think, gosh, right. I, I wonder if there's something there for us today in a very, I mean, we're all watching in some way, shape or form this unfold thinking, how do we get here? Like, what is happening? What am I to do? I don't know. I, I cry out to God. <laughs> that's, that's about, that's about yeah. all I have. I know that doesn't make for great radio, but 
would be be a people across the aisle, across political and denominational divides, you know, that we we cry out to God together and we let that move us to action. That's that's about what I got. Yeah, man, I think that's a great call because there's so much that we want to do and we want to get immediately on Facebook and we want to immediately. But but being people who pray and then I think having honest conversations with our uh, with our friends and our siblings and our families and our churches just going what's going on here? Like, what's, what does this say about us, about the church? And I, I really do appreciate you saying it's got to, the Bible constantly talks about these kind of things causing us to look inward. It becomes easy to judge and say those people, those people, those people, uh, but to look inward. So let's be people of prayer. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I watched this and was just like, I'm just so heartbroken and angry and all of this right now. Uh, and, and that really does need to drive us to pray for our country right now. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think uh, it's something that I hope everyone knows we're committed to doing on this show as well. And um, that's something that we're going to continue to uh, to address and keep out in front of you all uh, as we as we can throughout the show. Uh, coming up next, our guest is Todd Bolsinger. He wrote a new book called Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. That's coming up next year in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill. You can find us everywhere and anywhere, almost too many places. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that helps us out a bunch. But we are thrilled to have, not for one, but for two segments, author Todd Bolsinger. Welcome to the show, sir. Nice to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would you just take a moment or two or three, if you like, and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. So um, I'm um, I'm the executive director of the Church Leadership Initiative at the Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. How's that for a title? There you go. Yeah, no kidding. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so after, uh, after 27 years of being a pastor in a church, I went to work as a senior VP at Fuller Seminary, uh, helping them do some organizational change. And now I get to run a, an in, initiative that is focused entirely on helping church leaders uh, navigate faithful change. And that's what I do. I basically work on leading change. That's all. And speaking of change, you wrote a book called Tempered Resilience, uh, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. I, I'm curious uh, where that title came from. Can you tell us about tempered resilience and what do you mean? And maybe just what's kind of the overall point of the book? Yeah. So, so in 2015, I published another book called Canoeing the Mountains, which was really about how do you lead when you are in uncharted territory, when you can no mm-hmm. longer rely on your expertise. And, um, and I, uh, spent the better part of the last four years traveling around the country talking about that. And wherever I would show up, um, somebody who would, usually the person who invited me would say, Hey, thanks very much for the presentation. That was really ter- terrific. We really like it. But we don't think anybody can actually do that. <laughs> so I would find myself in this quandary. What I thought was, oh, they, they need me to do a better job of explaining how to lead adaptive change. And what I found is they said, no, 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 we understand that. One person said it to me this way. He said, I think I can learn to lead change. I'm not sure I can survive it. Oh, interesting. And then all of a sudden, it, the, like the dominoes fell for me. Because what's really hard about leading change for most, especially church leaders and nonprofit leaders and seminaries where I spend most of my time, it isn't the challenges outside in the world, the changing world. It is when you rally the troops to meet the challenges of a changing world Hmm. and then the troops resist going. 
Oh, interesting. It is so, so one internal resistance that creates the biggest kind of soul sucking thing for most leaders. Yeah. So one of the things that you write about, which is contrary to how a lot of people think, is that leadership is not primarily about title. I think a lot of people tend to think like, well, I can't, there's nothing I can do because I don't sit in that particular seat or I don't have that that you know nameplate that requires you know that kind of execution. What, what do you mean by leading? Um, maybe despite our title or our position in, the, in an organizational chart, what does what does that look like for you? Yeah. So so leading leading is a is a kind of skill set. It's a function. It's a role that you take on. And I think that leadership is when you are gathering a group of people for their own transformation in order to accomplish a mission. And yes, if you have a title and you've got the corner office and the heavy furniture, more people will look at you. But a lot of folks in those roles don't necessarily do that work, that work mm-hmm. of leadership. So many times people who get authorized are authorized to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. So your authority that is given to you may actually work against you if you need to bring you know genuine radical change. Um, and so what I want to do is separate the difference between the function of a leader, which is to lead people through a transformation process so that they can meet the challenges of, of their organization, and the titles and roles that you have. Yeah. And I want to teach leadership more as a, as a skill set, a function, a, a way of being in the world. Hmm. You use, uh, in your book, you use the, uh, you call a perfect metaphor of blacksmithing uh, mm-hmm. about the transforming work of a leader. Why don't you tell us a little bit as why you see blacksmithing and use it as what you say is the perfect metaphor here? Well, so the, the notion is this, is, is the book is called Tempered Resilience because I wanted to talk about tempered tools which are mm. tools that have become strong and flexible, like mm. a chisel as opposed to a sledgehammer. Mm. And the kind of transformation that we're talking about here is about the kind of transformation where you take the resistance that comes your way, the resistance of people who don't want to change, who are resisting change, and mm. through a process of strength and flexibility and wisdom, you're able to transform uh, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the um, mountain of despair into stones of hope. Mm-hmm. And that's the work, I, I think. And the blacksmithing metaphor is the process of transformation that we go through to become uh, raw, from, from the raw material that, we, that God has made us to be into that wise, flexible, strong, transformative leader. That's good. So I, I imagine maybe a year ago, when talking about organizational change, people people would think about one thing. And now in the year of COVID, right, I imagine people here change and they're thinking of something entirely different. I'd, I'd love to know from your perspective, uh, because COVID has changed pretty much everything for us, regardless of our field or our position. How, how have you seen COVID sort of affect or inform what, what it is that you're talking about regarding like leadership and change culture? Yeah, so I've often put it this way. When I work with organizations, I will say to them, think about the underlying um, issues, the underlying issues that a body has, a human person has, that makes them more susceptible to COVID. We know that a person is in much more danger if they have several underlying conditions like diabetes or heart disease or Mm -hmm. morbid obesity or something, right? What COVID has done in most organizations is it has revealed those underlying conditions. They were here ahead of time. Now they are writ large. So if we're an organization that has been, if you're a church, for example, that has been completely dependent upon your Sunday morning worship attendance 
and yet people don't have a deep sense of community or a deep sense of discipleship or an understanding about how their how their faith is lived out in the week, take away the Sunday morning service, and all of a sudden you start realizing that your work is really very as at risk, and your mm. mission is at risk. And what yeah. COVID has done has been has been I think has been apocalyptic. It's been very revealing about the underlying conditions of the church in the country today. Yeah. And you talk about how a leader needs to develop what you have called tempered resilience. Uh, maybe what happens, speak to what happens when uh, someone in a leadership position has never developed that in their life. Well, then, so here's the interesting thing, right? The opposite of a tempered tool is not a soft tool. It is a brittle tool. Mm-hmm. So what happens to many of us is that we get thrown into leadership experiences thinking that we're going to be able to use our expertise from our past thinking that if, you know, like I always say, the the moment you become a leader is the moment you become a beginner again. You get promoted Mm -hmm. in leadership right after you were really good at something else, right? So you were the best speaker, and so they made you the senior pastor, or you're the best scholar, so they made you the dean of the school, or you're the best salesperson, they made you the sales manager. Well, now you become a, a beginner again. And if you don't have the resilience to be able to learn and to go through the loss and the experience of vulnerability that happens mm-hmm. at that moment, that brittleness will oftentimes lead to your incapacity to be able to lead. Yeah, that's, wow. that's where um, leadership often fails. Well, Todd, I, I want to make sure that we hit this a couple of times in this interview, just because I think what you're writing about is so timely and so important. You're going to stick around for one more segment, but real quickly here, kind of in the middle, where can people go to learn more about you or your writing, this book specifically, or, or previous things that you've written? Yeah, so here's the easiest thing. Um, if you text the word change to 66866, <laughs> that's too many sixes in a row for a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> but if you text the word change to 66866, you get linked right to a bunch of resources at the Church Leadership Initiative at Fuller Seminary. That's wonderful. Our guest today is Todd Bolsinger. He's kind enough to join us for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you can podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing helps us out a bunch. And we're joined for a second segment by Todd Bolsinger, author of Tempered Resilience. And in the first segment, Todd, you, you used, I think, a really beautiful, kind of fascinating analogy that I, I don't often hear in leadership training, leadership courses, and that's of a blacksmith. And because, you know, Brian and I are both pastors, one of the things that we're often trying to like mine are what, what are some of the practical takeaways or handles or, or maybe just even specific analogies within that analogy that you have found people to find helpful? Yeah. So, um, so my wife and I took a blacksmithing class in, in Los Angeles. It, it happens in a neighbor. The neighborhood probably hasn't had a horse there in a hundred years, oh. but there is an urban blacksmithing community. And we did it and because we, I had read this section of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech where he talks about, um, with this faith, we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair stones of hope. Mm. Hew. That was the verb. Mm. Not smash, not bash, not destroy, not cower, but hew, to transform. And I thought, what are the kind of tools that can hew? 
And I thought of a chisel and I then began to look at tempered tools and I took this blacksmithing class. And one of the things that I learned is the process of blacksmithing is actually a kind of, a, a, it's a scary process. You go walking in the room to a place where literally everything in the room can kill you. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's fire and it's steel and it's anvils and hammers. And you realize, and I started feeling that's the experience that most leaders have when they have to go through the transformation to become the kind of leader who can lead change. It feels like a really transformative and, and almost dangerous experience of being mm. melted down, like the vulnerability of being put into a fire where you're melted down and then having to be held on an anvil and then pounded and shaped. And I found mm. that in that process is really, that's the process of the transformation from raw steel to a tempered tool. And I think there's a process there that we go through that most leaders, if they're willing to go through a process of transformation, can become both stronger and more flexible in order to lead change. Hmm. Uh, Ian and I, unfortunately, Todd, have had to do a lot of shows, a lot of segments in our shows this year about uh, in the church of leaders who have failed and leaders. It feels like we're doing those stories week after week. Uh, you think a lot about leadership. Uh, what would you? What would be your word of advice, maybe, to people who are hiring in a church or who are thinking this through? What are the characteristics you'd be looking for as you're bringing on a leader or a pastor that you think, yeah, this is going to set them up for some long-term success? Yeah. So I think there are two things that are the basic raw material for strong leadership, and they are a bit paradoxical. Hmm. One is you need to be grounded in something that other than your success as a leader. Mm -hmm. it's like that's like the strength of the raw material you have to be grounded in something other than your success as a leader success is dangerous and a desire for success is spiritually really dangerous mm -hmm. so you have to be grounded in knowing like jesus was you know before he'd said a word before he'd done a miracle before he cast out a demon he heard a voice that said you are my beloved son and you right. and i am well pleased right right so I would say when you're looking for leaders, look for people who are grounded in a faith that know they know they are loved and held and secure in that love, regardless of whether or not they're going to be successful as a leader. That That's mm -hmm. ironically one of the first parts is that you need to be grounded in something other. Because yeah, the second so. part is that leaders have to be learners. Mm -hmm. Most of us think the, the leader is the expert. And that's the King Saul problem is that the, whoever is the, the tallest, most handsome, the strongest warrior we think is the best leader. Leaders are actually learners hmm. and leaders in the changing world have to be able to be humble enough to be able to stand in front of a group of people and say, I don't know what the next thing is, but right. we're going to learn together and we're going to go through it and we're going to learn as we go and we're going to mm -hmm. face failure. We're going to hang in here until we learn it and until we grow through it. So one of the things that I posted uh, a couple of years ago that I caught a little bit of heat for, but people seem to resonate also with, and that was, I was just, I was comparing how many times the word leader versus the word servant showed up in scripture. And I don't remember the specific numbers, but you know, servant shows up a ton more than leader, uh, at least, you know, in our English translations. I remember Patrick Lencioni making a comment years ago. He said something like, I'm tired of the phrase servant leadership, because as far as I'm concerned, there is no other kind. <laughs> and I, that really resonated with me, but I heard a bunch of disagreement, you know, and sometimes when it comes to like leadership training and leadership books, people have a particular idea of, you know, top down hierarchical leadership. I'd, I'd be curious to know how, how you and your writing and your research intersect with this idea of 
like a, like a servant leader, you know, if, if we're to be modeling ourselves in our leadership after Jesus, how, how do you see that kind of playing out? Well, um, so I totally, completely agree with Lencioni on this point. I think there isn't any other biblical notion of leadership besides being a person who is a servant. And the reason for that is when you look at the notion of the shepherd, so I, I often get in conversations where people say, similarly, they'll say, hey, I don't believe that we should be leaders. We should be shepherds. We're pastors. Mm. Well, in the scriptures, the shepherd was actually the military leader. The point was, God says, I'm going to give you a shepherd after my own heart. I'm, you're going to be a shepherd who actually cares for the sheep, not exploits them or eats them. Mm. The point is the kind of leader that we're supposed to be. And so the notion that the shepherd is the person who cares and loves the flock and takes the flock where the flock needs to go, which is to participate, which is to follow God in God's um, mission of redeeming the world. So the notion of leadership can never be divorced from the way we care for our people, love our people, participate in their transformation and our own transformation. Um, that, that's the that's the entire notion of biblical leadership. Hmm. And Todd, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what about the maybe a leader out there? We've got lots of pastors who listen to the show. We've got, you know, people leading who just feel drained right now. Like they're, mm -hmm. you describe being on the anvil and they're like, yes, that's yeah. me. Could you maybe with a couple minutes we have left, speak a word of hope to them and maybe a word of perseverance to that person who feels like they're barely hanging on? Yeah, yeah. So my first thing would be to say is, um, please do not try to fake it until you make it. Mm -hmm. um, the only way to be truly transformed is to embrace the vulnerability of this moment, so, which is, means to be honest before God and to find people that you can be honest um, before them with as well. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about an anvil, I talk about the relationships that hold us mm -hmm. and that we need partners and we need mentors and we need friends. We need all three. We need people who are partners in the ministry with us. If you're trying to do it by yourself and lead by yourself, you're probably burned out. Yeah. You need mentors. Everybody needs a coach or a spiritual director or someone to work with them. Everybody does. And you need friends. You need people who love you even mm. more than they care about the mission that you are called to accomplish. Mm. And I thought for most of us, the t moments of deepest burnout are the moments when we feel most alone. Yeah. Yeah. My encouragement to you would be to be, take, bring your real self to a real God and to people who you can be really truly yourself with. And that you'll begin to at least find some hope and accompaniment along the way. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. I, I'm I'm wondering if you could just one more time. We did this in the first segment, but just let people know where can they find you, or more about the book, or more of your writings, or any anything that you're linked to. I imagine people go on to learn more. Where where can they go? Yeah, so they can find me on social media on Twitter, Todd Bowl at Twitter. But the the easiest way is to text the word change to six six eight six six change 66866. That's perfect. Again, our guest today has been Todd Bolsinger, author of the new book, Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change, something that I know a lot of us have been grappling with and wrestling with, especially this last year. Todd, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Mm -hmm. Hey, thank you so much. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here today on this 
kind of unprecedented day. It's a, it's a strange day, uh, to say the very least, but we are glad that you're spending some of it with us. Real quickly, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Come and Good Talk, and whatever it is, your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, that helps us out a bunch, and we're really grateful for all of you who have done that. I, I remember when, when COVID really hit in the United States in March, the first couple of shows, you and I were like, sorry, sorry to talk about COVID again, guys. You know, this is a lot. <laughs> yeah. I look back on that now thinking, gosh, we had we had no idea, you know, what we were in store for. We were talking about, man, this is so weird, but at least we'll be back for Easter and right and probably a number of other iterations like that throughout the year. And it's become probably the topic if you created like a word cloud of things that we've talked about this year. My guess is COVID, COVID-19, coronavirus would be high up that list, unfortunately. But I, I found this this article from Christian Century, and the headline just sort of caught my attention. It says, Ecclesiastes has some things to say about COVID-19. The ancient wisdom text urges us to find joy in the limits of the mm-hmm. present moment. And I don't I don't see a lot of people quoting Ecclesiastes right That's now. Right. So, uh, so it, it, of course— was at the very least intriguing to me. This was written just yesterday, but I thought I thought it was I thought it was fascinating. So why don't why don't you get us into it a little bit? Yeah, written by Brent Strawn. He he starts out by saying, as a biblical scholar, whenever I've been asked in recent days what scripture has to say in our present time of crisis, I've tended to refer people to the treasure trove of the Psalms, uh, those prayers of pain and grief and rage, also to the book of Amos. But there's another book he says, and that's the little book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, He says, one rarely hears Ecclesiastes in church these days, although the poem found in uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 is well known, due in part to turn, turn, turn the Peter Seeger song, Peter Seeger song. Uh, Whatever the merits of the poetic sentiment, most biblical scholars think the real point comes after the poem. Uh, Some even think the poem uh, is something uh, quoted only to refute, Uh, that even a season for everything and a time for every matter under the sun Humans do not and cannot know what those times are. We have no control over those times. They just happen and they happen to us. If this reading is accurate, the poem is a case of bait and switch, he says. Uh, And so it's going to go on for a bit more. But uh, his original point there that uh, that you that Ecclesiastes can speak to uh, to covid um, cause you're right. We, we point people to the Psalms. We point people to lamentations. We point people to other things. Uh, but what are your thoughts about Ecclesiastes? Maybe what would you tell people who aren't aware of Ecclesiastes kind of just the background a little bit, but what do you think about ta- using Ecclesiastes in this present time of our lives? Well, I don't know that I'm properly equipped, Brian, to give the background of Ecclesiastes. I do remember well, teaching, teaching Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago. One of the things that I said to introduce it, I said, Ecclesiastes is for everyone who ever played by the rules and still got screwed. Like wow. that was, you know, cause this, there is this, um, sometimes almost borderline karmatic Christian pop theology that can float around. Like, Hey, you do good things. Good things happen to you. That's do right. bad things. Bad things happen to you. And you are, you can make the case that, you know, passages like you reap what you sow. Like, yeah, all right. I, I could see some of where that might come from, but then, you know, you encounter something like Ecclesiastes, where often the uh, the wisdom, the takeaway is, yeah, you did all the things you're supposed to, and things still didn't pan out well. They they still you didn't end up where you thought you would. Uh, you pursued things that you thought would fulfill that didn't. You know, he calls it vanity, vanity, right? Which we we know is 
like the word means vapor, it means mist, it means meaninglessness. There's a there's a real uh, juxtaposition, I think, of someone, or at least in the school of Solomon, if if we want to be fair. I, my get my guess is Solomon probably didn't actually write it, but there's a a sense that uh, someone like Solomon who achieved all his dreams, like checked every box, like became everything that he ever hoped to be and was still filled with despair. I think of that, you know, that Jim Carrey quote where he talks about, he says something like, I wish everyone could achieve all their hopes and dreams so that mm-hmm. they could realize that's not actually the point. You know, like mm-hmm. he was somebody who climbed that ladder and was at the top, at least in his field and was like, Oh yeah, I'm still broken. I'm still really sad or I, I still feel unfulfilled. I think in this kind of current moment that we're, we're facing, particularly with COVID, there's a there's a lot that we could learn from in this book. Yeah, he says, when we reread Ecclesiastes in our present moment, we're reminded that the human project is, at the end of the day, decidedly small. Our lives come to an end. We all know that, even though we tend to live in denial, but it's not just human lives, uh, Ecclesiastes insists. It's the human project broadly conceived. Institutions can think, and maybe even forests too, Uh, And these can and have come to an end. What of economies, governments, nations, and states? Do these end? Sure, of course. And as a matter of course, uh, and he goes on to say, I imagine Ecclesiastes assessing the latest COVID-19 statistics and repeating what he said long ago. Time and chance happen to everyone. The race isn't always to the swift or the battle to the strong or or bread to the wise or riches to the intelligent. No one can anticipate when disaster will strike. Calamity comes without warning. And so that's kind of how this author takes Ecclesiastes and puts it to our present time. What are your thoughts on uh, (laughs) it, it sounds and Ecclesiastes reads this way when you read it, but man, that sounds just kind of fatalistic, right? Just despair. Ah, what's the point? It's all going to, it's all meaningless at some point. It's all going to come to an end and COVID might get me. It might not. What do you say to the person Ian, who's like, gosh, that just sounds fatalistic. Like it, wh- where's my hope in this? Where, where do I find hope here? Well, I mean, I mean, f- fatalism is more like that everything is predetermined and inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. That's, so I, I think, um, you know, some might even make the case that their particular brand of Christianity looks like that. I think more of what interests me about Ecclesiastes is the notion that we don't cling too tightly to fool's gold in the hopes that it will bring us some kind of meaning or purpose. That's not to say that there aren't still good yeah. things to hope for, right? Like people, especially if you think about it in a COVID lens, like wanting to be physically near your family is a like a good, righteous, sacred thing to desire. But I think the the arc of Ecclesiastes is to, I don't know, maybe like lift the fog from our eyes a little bit. Like a lot of the stuff that we chase after. I think a lot of people have found that this last year, like their mm. uh, unsustainable workload, their their com- their completely breakneck speed, the constant pursuit of achievement or pleasure or whatever, like that. Those things we are sort of having to face some of those things in a in a way that maybe some of us haven't. And I think Ecclesiastes does sort of pull back the curtain to say, man, there's this hunger, this desire that every human heart has. And if you let that lead your life, uh, you're ultimately going to be miserable. That, that yeah. to me is not only what I think a lot of us are experiencing now, but a lot of what the heartbeat behind Ecclesiastes really is. Yeah. And then you get to the very end of Ecclesiastes, right? He's been like over and over again, meaningless and this and that. And he gets to Ecclesiastes 12 and he's like, 
Uh, so what's the purpose of it all? And he says, fear God and obey his commands. And I think you're right. I think there's the point of Ecclesiastes isn't just despair and just fine, give it all up because there's nothing. But it's it's like you said, it's uh, it's what is actually the actual purpose. Where is true life found? Where What are the things not worth chasing after that we spend so much time? And this author's right. COVID has peeled that back for a lot of us. Uh, oh, man, these things that I really counted on, health job, whatever else, have now been kind of ripped away because of COVID relationships, whatever. And uh, and Ecclesiastes, again, I think this is interesting how COVID uh, and Ecclesiastes kind of come together is a really interesting kind of a, it's a, it's a really interesting reflection by this, uh, by this author. Yeah. And we'd love to know what you think. We've posted this up at our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show, and you can weigh in in the comments or you can send us a private message if you prefer, if you have thoughts about this or any article or story or topic we tackle, or if you have suggestions or ideas for future shows, you can go ahead and weigh in there. And uh, that concludes the first hour, but coming up next, I want to talk about really this notion of good versus better. It's a theme that Brian and I have circled around a number of times, but really kind of never gone fully after. So we're going to talk about that coming up next year on The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about good versus better. And what has the pandemic done to dating? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. If you want to learn more about the show or engage with content or ask us a question, you can go on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Common Good Talk or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're listening via podcast right now, first off, thank you. Second off, you can subscribe, rate, review, and then share it with a friend or tweet it or pick a number at random and send to them. That all helps us out a bunch. And we're really, really grateful for all of you who have done that. Brian, uh, before we dive into this topic, I haven't even asked you yet. How are you doing? Yeah, I was doing well till I turned on CNN at like two o'clock. Sure, <laughs> sure. Honestly, man, I, I am having a good I was having a great day. Got to spend some time with a pastor's group that I uh, I've been in for. It's a really random pastor's group for like the last five years. We don't even necessarily live. We're all in the Western suburbs, but not even in the same town. And it, we were randomly put together and we meet every month and it's awesome. And I know you've got groups of guys like that. And it was really just, uh, it was just really fun. And so, yeah, no, it's been a great day. I, if you were with us in the first hour, you know, I just, we, we are just both angry and more so sad by what's going on in Washington, DC today. So that's kind of put a pall over everything. But until that started, I was having a great day today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, Brian. Uh, This article from uh, Trevin Wax over the Gospel Coalition The headline reads, The Secret of Good Versus Better. This is a topic you and I have talked about from uh, probably a number of different angles. Mm -hmm. We talked about the good uh, good things often becoming the enemy of the best things, how for a lot of us, our biggest challenge isn't like, should I do this awful, horrible thing or this like good, virtuous thing? It often is, uh, there's a whole bunch of good things that are robbing me of time focused on the best thing. You know, you could speak about that in... A theological sense in a familial sense, you know, so often we're caught up doing a lot of good things, but we're missing prioritizing our family or time with our spouse or close friends. This is a theme that I, I feel like a lot of people struggle with, probably some personality types and wirings more than others. But I thought, man, this this was a an insightful read at a pretty curious time in history that uh, I, I thought and hope will be helpful for all of you. Yeah. So why don't you uh, get us into a little bit? It begins with the story of uh, Jim Elliott and the other missionaries uh, in Ec- in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956. This is like 
every Wheaton College student where I went, these were all Wheaton College students. And so every Wheaton College student knows this story and just assumes everybody knows it because all our dorms are named after these guys and football field and everything. But it says this week, January the 8th, marks the 65th anniversary of the death of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming and Roger Udarian. The five missionaries were speared to death in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956. They were all in their late 20s and early 30s. In subsequent years, Elizabeth Elliott, who is Jim's widow, and Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, went back to the Harani tribe to continue the work of their family members. Many among the tribe eventually put their trust in Christ. Before he died, Nate Saint wrote, The way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we were taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face that same expendability. That quote presents a challenge not only to missionaries, but to all Christians. We should see ourselves as expendable for the sake of the gospel because there is something greater than this earthly life, Trevin Wax writes. You've probably heard the famous line from Jim Elliott's journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's powerful for the way it restates a principle we learned from Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The one who loses his life for my sake will find it. And also lines up with the example of the apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul saw the life of the believer as ultimately consisting of two options, good and better. This is the secret to his contentment. This is the secret to his passion. It gives him courage in the face of opposition and the secret of good versus better challenges the American mindset today as we remember the 65th anniversary of the death of these five men. And now he's going to go. He says, take a look at two ways the good versus better secret shapes uh, takes shape. What do you think about this background? You said we've talked about this a lot, good versus better, uh, but particularly how he frames it around this very famous missionary story. What jumps out to you there? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, you know, he later references Philippians and my first sermon series as lead pastor of my last church was in Philippians. So there's like a, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I think I'll probably all, always have an affinity to that letter. But, you know, the next heading here is the good living for Christ by serving others, better dying and being with Christ. That to me, I think is is probably what is jarring and probably was jarring when people first read those words of Paul where he legitimately mm-hmm. seems conflicted like oh gosh i yes i mean i want to be with you all but i also kind of want to be with jesus and i'm not really i'm summarizing by the way but he's like i'm not really sure which (laughs) is even more desirable right now and you know you think can you imagine somebody preaching like that today like i like being with you guys but i also kind of want to be with jesus i might want to be with jesus more that to me feels like that's where that's where my ultimate aim is like it would be really jarring in a lot of ways and part of what I found interesting about this article is like, why? Why is that so jarring? It's right. it's certainly one of those things that we say in in sort of like theoretical abstract ways, but we we don't expect anyone to actually like believe it or or like live like it's true. And this again, you know, the good versus better in more trivial matters, like oh, you should not answer one more email and like play ball with your kids, yeah. but like in a cosmic existential sense, like oh, that's. I think he makes some interesting points here. And there are things that I don't often think about myself, to be honest. Yeah. And he goes on later to say, good, standing firm in faith and obedience, better suffering as a sign of salvation and judgment. And again, he goes to Paul's words in Philippians chapter one. 
Uh, but he goes on to say, once again, we see a situation that most people would say is going from bad to worse, bad facing opposition, worse suffering in terror. But Paul says it's good to face opposition because it gives you the chance to stand firm in your faith. And he says it's better to suffer because that's a sign of salvation and judgment. It's a sign of the cross. Like you said, the last one is just kind of mind boggling. When every time you read Philippians, you're like, you can lose sight that Paul was an actual guy, right? Like going, hey, I'm in right. prison. Maybe I would rather die. Maybe suffering's the best route here. Maybe. And you're like, that. No, I can't imagine being at that point. And that's where it becomes difficult. Like, how do you live yeah. out what is better versus what is good? Because you also brought up some very practical ones where we wrestle with good versus better, right? It's good for me, uh, you know, uh, to get this done in my house, but might be better for me to sit down and talk to my kids or go outside and play with my kids, or it might be good versus better. Uh, but man, when he takes it to Paul in the book of Philippians, it's where it becomes so hard to go. Like you just said, could you imagine somebody getting up and either saying, saying either of these, I think we, we would think they're borderline crazy. Yeah. Right. And I, I think what he says here too, is this reminder, which to me is probably the most timely part of it is that the future belongs to God. He goes before mm-hmm. us. It's in his hands like this, this notion of remembering ultimately we belong to him and not to be morbid, but there's a certain sense that I feel like we would all do well to grapple with. Like every breath is a gift and we can walk around thinking we're invincible or thinking that we really are, you know, the captains of our own destiny. Um, Some of us know all too well that we're not. And I think unfortunately it often takes, tragedy for us to kind of like snap out of it and realize how frail we are, how fleeting life is. But there's, I think, a way for us to to really grapple with that more consistently and not not require some sort of tragic loss for us to, you know, kind of interact with that truth, because I think it's an important thing. And I think it informs the way that we live. I think the more that we can remember those things, it will change the way that we live in the present. If we see everything that we have right. as a gift, it will change the way I do spend my time and my money and talk to people and prioritize my schedule. You know what I mean? Like there's, mm-hmm. there's just a lot to that, that I think some, some might be listening, thinking, well, what is the existentially? What's really the point of the way? Does it make a difference? Yeah, I think it absolutely makes a difference. I think, it's why Paul often says things like set your minds on these things, like what you think about, what you ponder, what you grapple with intellectually, cognitively, cerebrally actually has an effect on the type of life you end up living. And, you know, I think that that is uh, for such a time as this, man, when a lot of us are feeling all over the map and probably a lot of fear or grief or confusion or anger, any of that. I think those are worthwhile things to grapple with. And that, again, much longer article. That's up our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. This article from Baptist, Baptist News Globals we're going to tackle next. And it says, do you see Jesus as a power broker or a liberator? That article from Sid Smith is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Encourage you to do so. You can interact there or share or message us. You can also listen to the podcast. And while you're doing that, subscribing, rating, reviewing helps us out a bunch. And uh, as as most of you know, Brian and I are pastors. So there are certain articles that interest us, particularly if they come from a, a Christian or religious angle. And every once in a while, those are the ones that seem to get us in the most trouble. But that is the nature of the role, I imagine. So here's one that uh, comes out of Baptist News Global, written by Sid Smith III. 
Do you see Jesus as a power broker or a liberator? You want to get us into it? Yeah, Sid Smith III, as you said, writes this. A couple of decades ago, I had the privilege of serving at a well-known black church in Brooklyn. One day, some visiting German theologians who were examining the black church in America asked our pastor if the God of the oppressor and the God of the oppressed were, in fact, the same God. He emphatically responded that, of course, they're different gods. He went on to say, there's no way you could tell me that your God told you to put your foot on my neck and I serve the same God. The God I serve tells me and empowers me uh, to get your foot off my neck by any means necessary. There is a perspective of God that says, quote, I enjoy power, prosperity and protection because I'm God's chosen. Therefore, my pursuit of more power, more prosperity and more protection is God's will for me and those like me. This perspective has been too prominently evident, although rarely articulated quite like that in the last 500 or so years uh, of colonial European history and throughout American history. Uh, And so all too often, it's been hard to tell the difference between the Great Commission and manifest destiny. He says there's another perspective of God that sees God as the ultimate liberator from oppression, spiritual, interpersonal, economic, sociopolitical. This perspective says God loves me too much to want me to be victimized. And God identifies so much with the conditions of my life that God hurts when I hurt. This is a common historical understanding of God in the black Christian community in America. He goes on to say, I contend that what we know about the circumstances of Jesus's life here on earth, coupled with what Jesus actually said, on top of the recorded history of God's chosen people, combined with the many descriptions of God's kingdom being a place in which justice and righteousness are restored from their current earthly subjugation, leads us to an accurate hermeneutical understanding of Jesus as being more inclined toward the liberation from oppression than toward the acquisition of more power, prosperity, and protection. Ian, there is a ton there, but why don't we start with where we ended there with kind of his conclusion. Uh, what do you think about his conclusion and, and kind of how he got there? Well, I think what he says next is is pretty key because he says the difference in understanding and interpreting Jesus helps explain why, although evangelicals of all ethnicities tend to believe the same things and share the same values on many levels, White evangelicals and ethnic evangelicals tend to express our beliefs very differently at the ballot box. That, to me, is a really interesting observation Mm. because on paper, oftentimes, especially to people outside of the church, I imagine their observation has to be like, aren't you guys pretty close to the same? You know, like there's if you line up the things that you value or the convictions you feel about even specific nuances of theology in terms of percentage, in terms of ratio, I realize there's a lot of distinctions there. We have, you know, 33,000 denominations in America alone. Like, I get that that's, that's a lot. That number may be false, by the way. But I, I realize that <laughs> these distinctions are um, sometimes very, very important. Maybe other times not nearly as much. I think uh, my friend Justin would say, too, that we, we do lack, I think, in America – a robust ecclesiology, like what does it actually mean to be the church? But the observation, though, that while on paper, a lot of us look pretty similar, but how we actually vote or how we engage in justice movements and efforts, the way that we love our neighbor, our communities, the way, you know, I mean, those things can range dramatically. And I think, you know, what we've seen this last year in politics and in COVID conversations and in race conversations is those are all examples of that. Like, wow, how how can people who both call themselves Christ followers, Christians seem to disagree 
in some cases violently on what the best course of action is going forward. That to me is fascinating, bordering on discouraging to a new level, just based on the stuff that we've seen this last year. Yeah. And something we've both wrestled with on the show over the last year, but let's ask it in terms of this article and what he's talking about. This might surprise some people out there. You and I are both white pastors. And so uh, I'm being sarcastic about that being a surprise. Uh, (laughs) What do we do with with kind of his what what's our takeaway? Like for you and for me or for others listening, what is the takeaway? If maybe I go, okay, I agree that Jesus was born uh, poor and that Jesus was born on the outskirts and that that's who Jesus often reached out to during his time. And I believe that Jesus releases people from oppression rather than give the powerful more power. Um, but, but what does that then change for us? You, you get what I'm asking? Like, like, what do you do with an article like this, which is super well-written and super convicting? Uh, what's, what's a takeaway or two for you? I mean, for me, a lot of it comes down to the name of the show. You know, if we were to be mm-hmm. Christians of the common good um, to see through that lens. And we've done other articles in the past where that, you know, what was the one? This was a few months ago. And it was here's why your conservative uncle is never going to vote the same way you do. You know, and it was written particularly to um, I think he had said in the beginning of the article, something like this is to left leaning millennials, like just to try to help you understand this is maybe why your conservative parents or uncles, you know, disagree with you so, so aggressively and vice versa. That, that to me is part of the, the struggle. And if we, if we can't, if we cannot get to a place where I'm on both sides or every side that we, we recognize the sacred Imago day in each other, first and foremost, right. That has mm-hmm. to happen. Otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise we're just going to get caught in a screaming match or worse. Um, but I, I also, th- I think it requires like a sacred curiosity. It, feel, it feels like so often now we, we come to every debate and every argument and every topic with just this absolute certainty that there's no way that I'm wrong. There's mm-hmm. no way that anything that you have to say could in any way benefit me or shed new light on information. And I think as long as we continue to approach conversations that way, uh, we're going to be in real trouble. I think honestly, and this maybe sounds too passive for some people, I think a lot of us myself included, we need help uh, growing in our interior life, uh, self-examination. I feel feel like there's a lot of that that's needed before we can ever actually build the kind of bridges that I think we need to build. Um, But that takes a a lot of work. It's way easier to come up with, you know, mic drop tweets and Facebook posts than it is (laughs) to like love the person who looks and talks and acts and votes differently than I do. Yeah. and, And I'll always look back to this summer uh, on our show to the ability you and I had selfishly to be able just to talk to many African-American pastors, inner city pastors, past people pastoring in different spots than us and just listen and just ask questions. And, and that was such a growing experience for me. And and hopefully it was for our listeners. And I, I'm also, I, I walk away from an article like this going, okay, uh, we need to get back to actually reading the words and the stories of Jesus uh, and going, it's hard to read the Gospels and go, yeah, Jesus was for the powerful primarily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was yeah. for more power. Right. Like to go back, if we, if we are followers of Jesus, to go back and read the words of Jesus and then ask just the humble questions. Okay, what do I do with that? Jesus said X. Now, now what does that look like in my life today? And if our real desire is to follow Jesus, uh, then, then we should be wanting to ask those questions rather than getting defensive and going no and screaming back and forth, like you said. Uh, but considering again, 
what does it mean to be a Christ follower here in the 21st century uh, in America? And, and how do I need to, what changes do I need to make in my life? Yeah, I think that's well said, man. And again, I realize that this could very well be like a hot button topic for a lot of people, but uh, we've been having some great dialogue over on the Facebook page. I encourage you to head on over there and weigh in with your own comments and let this be an opportunity for us to learn from one another. That's been our heartbeat for the show from the very beginning. You know, we know that our audience is diverse in terms of our background, our upbringing, our theology. That I think is a helpful place to at least begin a discussion, although recognizing the limits of platforms like Facebook and Twitter, you can do all of that over there. And we rather encourage you to do so. Coming up next, something that uh, Brian and I probably haven't had to think much about, but I've certainly heard a number of people talking about what the pandemic has done for dating. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm and we are so stinking glad that you are here. Just to say it out loud, forgive me for not saying it earlier. Thanks for joining us. If you want to find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you can at Common Good Talk. You can like or subscribe or review some of those pages, not all of them, but that does all help us out. Speaking of subscribing and reviewing, that also helps the podcast a ton. So wherever you listen to podcasts, that's a great place to do it. If you're hearing it for the first time, okay, shortly after our show airs around 6.10, 6.15 p.m. Central Standard Time. And uh, we would love for you to engage with us there. I haven't I haven't done the, the holidays yet. Is it a – would that help lighten the mood a little bit? It feels like it's been it, a heavy day. It, unless it's like National Storm the Gates Day. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not. Quite the opposite. It's actually National Cuddle Up Day. So that's – Oh, yes. Perfect. <laughs> What Perfect. a weird reaction. What a weird reaction to that holiday, Brian. I was not ready for you to be that emphatic about cuddling. I need warm feelings and good news today. That's what I need right now. So, yes. <laughs> that, that is. This segment brought to you by MyPillow. Uh, the other <laughs> holidays for today, we have um, National Technology Day, National Shortbread Day. And are you ready for it? I am. It's Bean Day. Like eating beans? I'm not a big fan of beans. What other what other beans are there? Magic beans. <laughs> I mean, you, you can still eat those, you know? Mister Mister Bean. <laughs> oh boy, you thought it was you thought it was Mister Bean Day, and that's what you thought. <laughs> no, but you I don't like. An hold an on, wait, 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 wait. I needed on, an on, answer on. when you, you said, "What other beans are there?" <laughs> you you don't you don't like bean like you like refried beans though, like in tacos, right, or burritos. You're gonna yell at me. I do not. Do you I like do burritos in general? I do. I okay. love bur- I love burritos and tacos. I do not. <laughs> I usually skip over the refried beans, though. Okay, well, that's disappointing, but not surprising. It is also <laughs> how many times? Also, how many times in the life of our show have you said it's disappointing and not surprising? <laughs> yeah, I know too ma- too many to count. I should also mention it is Epiphany, which is also sometimes called Three Kings Day. We'll talk about that coming up next. Um, mm-hmm. It's also Armenian Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. And Christmas Eve Orthodox. So look at that. Did you know that? I didn't, or else I wouldn't have taken my tree down, but I already took it down. So. Mm, you did. I just to wait till Epiphany. Oh, boy. Marcus is going to be so upset with you. All right. <laughs> so this is from The Atlantic. What the pandemic has done for dating. Many single Americans have been more intentional about whom they date, are having deeper conversations, and are spending more quality time with new partners. I found this fascinating you and i haven't dated for a minute right not 
each you other or anybody for a fucking time. <laughs> right, right. I'm just saying we haven't dated. We're like out of the dating game and have been Very long for time. a while. Yeah. That's right. But I still, this is something that I've heard from my friends who are dating that, you know, at least initially the pandemic was like, great, how are you even going to meet anybody? And I found this article really interesting because it's, although it obviously isn't ideal for a lot of people, most people, there's a possibility that's actually leading to a greater level of depth at sort of the the dating level. So uh, why don't you get us started here? Yeah. And again, this is at The Atlantic. It says in a year when sharing space and air with people is potentially dangerous, one would think that dating would be particularly dismal, perhaps even put on hold. Recent data suggests, though, that that's not quite the case, however, and even point to some positive developments. Many single Americans have been uh, more intentional about whom they date, are having deeper conversations and are spending more quality time with new partners. Most dating apps report increased usage since March and noticeable changes in daters' attitudes. Singles in America uh, surveyed 5,000 Americans and found that 58% of people who use dating apps say they have shifted toward more intentional dating since the pandemic. Of those surveyed, uh, 69% are being more honest with potential partners and 63% are spending more time getting to know them. The dating site OkCupid, where... Uh, where I'm a scientific advisor. That's great. Uh, hmm. Also noticed a 20% decline in users seeking a hookup. These numbers are optimistic news for people looking for a relationship, given that research finds that couples who spend time getting to know each other uh, before having sex have happier relationships later on. Prioritizing emotional connection allows romantic relationships to ignite via a slow simmer rather than to burn out quickly. We'll pause there. I like you, I would never have guessed this. I would have guessed it like dating's kind of been put on hold uh, or just because you can't go anywhere. Right. And so right. Uh, this is really interesting because it's also kind of spitting out some uh, some things that that the church has said and, and other people have said, right, this whole kind of prioritizing emotional connection and this slow simmer that that research is kind of finding that there's a strengthening of relationships right now as people are kind of treating it differently simply because we're in a pandemic. Yeah, this is really fascinating. Now you said you you were pretty fascinated by this. What what jumped out to you about this? Sorry, you lost me at spitting out. I don't that uh <laughs> I was like who's spitting what out? What what what, what, what happened with this article? I also love and that my, the author of this, Sarah Conrath, is called an empathy scientist. What a great title. Sounds made up if you ask me. I don't know that. Exactly. Truth. <laughs> no, I think I think part of what's so interesting to me is uh one like you said at the beginning as non-daters, we're like, well, I guess dating's just going to stop for a little while. That hasn't been in the in the very few conversations I've had, nobody that I know who's dating really thought that it was just going to stop happening. Like that's that feels like an an easy, almost obvious observation for married people like you or me to be like, well, I guess that's not happening. But people yep. are like, no, that's that needs to still happen. This is still a very important part of my life. Um, what I also find so interesting is that it's you know this pandemic is happening right now where we have things like online dating, digital dating options like we wouldn't have not only would we not have these options we wouldn't have this data 20 30 years ago so that also is really in, that, that they're able to see percentage drops in like the types of relationships people are looking for so to see a percentage drop in just casual hookups um yeah. based based on their platform i i just i do find that really interesting 
I'd be curious to know what you think, because you said we're seeing some of this even in the church world or what we see churches saying kind of line up with it, what this article is saying. What, what did you mean by that? You know, uh, what did you always teach to high school and college students? What, uh, when I look back, it's the slow down on the physical intimacy, get to know each other first, uh, build an emotional um, uh, foundation. Uh, and they would always call it, kind of roll their eyes at you. Uh, but but that's what they the the research here in a this isn't a Chris this isn't Christianity today or what we're reading from here it's the Atlantic they're saying hey uh, we're seeing strengthened relationships because it's having to be built on conversation and mm. getting to know each other and it's slowed later on the article it says uh, COVID nineteen has slowed down the physical intimacy stages of relationships and has allowed people to get to know each other more and it's therefore it also even accelerated the timeline for commitment it's this idea of like Oh, it's it. It seems to be birthing more healthy relationships when uh, they're seeing this kind of uptick of people going, hey, all we could do is talk uh, or text or, you know, we're not going to spend that much time around each other. It's kind of uh, building this emotional base. And I think we'd all say that ideally that's a great way to build a relationship. So you lost me again when, when you said decreased intimacy, but that it's birthing new opportunities. I thought that's, again, I was like, oh boy, that isn't, no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I think, I think part of what, what we've been seeing even in our, in our communal and church relationships is that there, there obviously is still like a, like a deep abiding lament that we're not able to like physically gather together, mm-hmm. but, but, with a you know very very large asterisk, people are saying like, but I've I've actually never been more consistent in small group, or I've never been I've never better prioritized dinner with the family. Like even personally, like I've been able to be home <laughs> with my family for dinner and spend more time with my kids um, than ever before. And and that's obviously a much different category than what this article is getting at. But I do right. I think there's something, and I'm not I, I don't want to gloss over like some of the horrific tragedy that so many of us have faced this last year, but this does feel a little bit like, all right, so maybe there is some aspect of some of this that will, you know, over time, maybe reap some benefits that as a society, as a culture, we actually learn some things from, we benefit from and are, are more whole people out into the dating world. And then, you know, onto relationships and all that Absolutely. long-term. I think, uh, I think that could ultimately be a good thing. That's at least what I'm hoping that like every article is up at our Facebook page and we would love to know what you think. And as we wrap up the show here, coming up next, I mentioned it a couple of times today is epiphany. And I thought Brian and I would just reflect on that a little bit before we wrap up. That's coming up next here in the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good for the final time today. My name is Ian Michael Simpkins. His name is Brian James Fromm, and together we're The Common Good. I, uh, I want to do that a little a little less aggressively today. It feels like this is a good day for us to go. Remember the old like talk radio sketches on SNL? Do you remember those? Not really. No, no. No, uh, it was two two ladies, and they 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 would like intentionally. Just oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, like in a, yes. a really a really quiet. I do remember voice. those. Yes. I don't. I don't. I don't know why. I should go back and see if they hold up. But I remember laughing so hard at those when I and I was I was probably high school or college to be honest. Man, I found those so funny. They, I, I might look, go back and look at them and realize they're actually really inappropriate, and someone's going to send me an email. But either way. Going to end on a more of a calm note. One of the things we've been doing or trying to do, I guess, is at the beginning of the show, we'll kind of tackle some some headlines, some stuff that we feel like you should know. 
And then for this last segment, to treat it not quite like a benediction, but we know that, you know, for a lot of you, you're you're listening during drive time right now or at the end of a day or on a walk, just uh, as a sort of a ascending of sorts, like, hey, back into the world now. Here's hopefully a, a blessing or a challenge or something to kind of kind of take with you. And today is Epiphany. It would be the right day in a lot of people's minds to now take down the Christmas decorations. Some of you took them down December 26th and we should talk, <laughs> but uh, today is epiphany. And I think that there's, there's a lot to epiphany or in some parts of the country it's called, or parts of the world it's called three Kings day. Um, but we celebrate, you know, the trip of the Magi, the first non-Jewish people who came to celebrate the birth of Jesus, which to me is like such a, a beautiful picture, a beautiful reminder that, you know, God is often pursuing and coming after what the rest of the world kind of deems as the outsiders, right? When like mm-hmm. Herod's freaking out, you know, with violence and manipulation and the religious elite, the chief priests, they're, you know, they had all the same information, but they're just complacent. They're disinterested. It's the, it's these magi, these astrologers that are the ones that are just like seeking after Jesus and they bring, you know, gifts for a king in the gold that they brought and, gifts for a priest, the incense of frankincense, and then myrrh, you know, which is for embalming, you know, for someone who was born to die. I just think there's so much, so much beauty in that story. And it's such a common story that I think we can sometimes miss some of the deeper meaning behind it. So I want to talk a little bit about the the meaning of, uh, of today, and then, uh, and then hopefully leave you with a little bit of a challenge. So do you want to, you want to give some of the, the background and context to today, Brian? Yeah, you got a lot of it. it. This is from Newsweek, an article at Newsweek. It says every year on the 12th day of Christmas, January the 6th, the Epiphany, as you said, also known as Three Kings Day, is celebrated as a Christian feast day. For many Christians, the holiday season does not end until the Epiphany, which marks the biblical worship of baby Jesus from the Three Kings, who are also known as the Wise Men or Magi. According to the Gospel of Matthew, the three kings followed a star to reach Jesus at the manger where he was born in Bethlehem. And after they had heard uh, the king, they went on their way. After they had heard from Herod, they went on their way. And the star they had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, And then it talks about what those gifts kind of represent, that gold is often attributed to royalty of Jesus as the king of the Jews. The frankincense represents Jesus's holy presence as God's son. And finally, myrrh, which is typically used as a preservative, symbolizes that Jesus was mortal and would die for our sins in the future. Uh, And I didn't know this. Traditionally, kids who celebrate Epiphany leave their shoes outside their doors overnight on January the 5th and find toys and presents in them the following morning. And so that's kind of the background of Epiphany. Uh, Not going to surprise anybody who normally listens to the show. I have never been in a context that has celebrated Epiphany uh, in the church context I have. And I'm not sure you have either. But what do you see as the uh, as the, um, the importance of this, what's the, what's the takeaway you, you said there's kind of a, a charge out of this. Yeah. I mean, if, I think what I, what I was saying earlier is probably what I would offer as a charge, you know, the reminder that, that God is a God who loves and pursues the outsiders, you know, that when we're, when we're tempted in the ways of Herod or the religious elite that again, like Jesus does, Often he kind of flips everything upside down. You know, this idea that we, um, 
I don't know. I think that there's a, a real, a real sense for me that in the midst of the busyness and chaos of our world today, how easy it is for us to miss Jesus or to think that we have him figured it out or to think that we've, you know, gone the right direction. The word epiphany, I mean, it, it literally means radiance becoming manifest. Wow. Um, so one of the things that I wrote was that my prayer is that we, the ones that God breathed into existence and gave us his image, should strive to make that same radiance manifest in every moment of every day to every person we encounter. Like that, to me, is is the invitation that now that Jesus has become human, every day is Christmas. And that's what Father Kenneth Tanner was writing about earlier today, that it's it's not just a, a season that we celebrate and then we go on with our lives. Like the, the world is now like different as a result. And I think it's easy for us to miss that, especially, I don't know, especially with all the chaos and heartache that we see in our world. And, and one of the things that a friend of mine posted, um, it's from uh, Thomas Rosica. And it says, the experience of the Magi reminds us that all who make the tedious journey to the truth will finally encounter it and be changed in the process. Mm. They can never go back to a, quote, business as usual way of life. When we meet Christ and see who he really is, we will never be the same. And only then can we hope to begin to share in his mission. I just, on a day like today, to me, that resonates so deeply because a lot of us are very missionally minded anyway, right? So we want to, we want to go after it. We want to go change the world. We want to go, we want to go do it. And that's good. That's a good instinct. But part of what epiphany reminds us though, is that we, we need to first be transformed by Jesus before we can live on mission for Jesus. And I think to skip the first step and go right to the second or to treat Christmas only like something that we, you know, celebrate and we grieved that it looked different this year. And then we just kind of go on with our lives. Like, no, the, the encounter of the Magi, the unexpected worshipers of Jesus, they leave differently. It like changes their lives. And I think that in a lot of ways is, is the invitation of epiphany. Yeah. And I think for somebody like me who I've, you know, I grew up in a Christian missionary lines church, have always worked in a non-denominational church. Uh, it reminds, you know, you get reminded at certain times of the value of of the traditional church calendar and understanding what these things mean. Like for me, I don't know. I don't even know at what point in my life I even knew that epiphany was a thing. <laughs> like it mm-hmm. was even part of the calendar, right? I don't even remember being, it was never like, oh, we're, we're not, we're not going to do epiphany. It was just never even like a thing. Uh, and so I do think that there's value. If you're like me out there and you're somebody who hasn't grown up in any uh, any kind of church calendar tradition, I still think there's great value in in becoming um, cognizant of it and even learning about it. Because then as I read these things, I'm like, man, this is good stuff. Like this is good to be challenged and good to reflect upon. And I think in kind of our non-denominational churches, uh, we can lose this. And so I'm grateful that we're spending a little bit of time on this. Yeah, I am too, man. And at the very least, I hope that you find it encouraging. If this is the first that you've ever really heard of Epiphany, uh, the day is not over yet. I'd encourage you do a little Googling, find a, a devotional. I, I know that's not always the the best route, but I, I do I do find that today is a significant day that unfortunately a lot of evangelicals in the West, like you were saying, Brian, I appreciate you saying that, have never really interacted with. But it's a it's a really important, really beautiful way to sort of mark the season and uh, again to celebrate just another facet of God's love. And I think, man. Today, now more than ever, mm-hmm. uh, that's something that we need to be diligent in doing. So uh, those articles and some of the things we mentioned are up at our Facebook page at Common Good Talk, and we would love to hear from you there. And with that, 
our show is done, but we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.